Welcome to Interchange. Man, you're always gonna find It's Fall Fun Drive at WFHB when we invite you to become contributing members. This is very literally your community radio station when you become a contributing or sustaining member. We'll talk more about this throughout the show, but let's get to it. Our show today is The Future is Change, interviews on climate disruption. Our opening song is Big Black Hole and the Little Baby Star by Sean Hayes, off of the 2006 album of the same name. Big Black Hole, you've been sucking them in, he's spitting them out. Oh, oh, come on, let my baby shine. Today we'll highlight four previous programs which focus on climate change or climate disruption. We'll hear from atmospheric scientist Sarah Pryor, journalist Dar Jamail of Truthout, and David Wallace-Wells of New York Magazine, and Eduardo Brondizio, professor of anthropology at Indiana University and the co-chair of the Global Assessment of Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services for the Intergovernmental Science Policy Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services. We begin with Sarah Pryor from December 3rd, 2013. Pryor had also been a guest on Interchange in October of 2009, and by that pattern I should have followed up with her in 2017. And that brings me to an apology. Today's climate show skips from December 2013 to April 2019, about a five and a half year gap. That's a lot of time to lapse after I spoke with Sarah Pryor about urgency and needing citizens and policymakers to pay attention. It's my commitment to you to do better. This is urgent and necessary, and Interchange pledges to offer conversations in the future that help us all understand and mobilize for adaptation and mitigation. And now, the future is change. Interviews on climate disruption. A special for Fun Drive on Interchange on WFHB. I wanted to uh, start out uh, first just saying that uh, I think, Sarah, it was 2012 was the hottest year on record yes, so far. Right. And is, there's a period like the last 13 or 14 out of 15 years or fif- 15 out of 16 years have been the hottest since we've kept uh, records? That's right. That's right. I mean, one of the things that, that perhaps does give us something of a sense of urgency is statistics like that, but also knowing that in the Midwest, as in the globe as a whole, we warmed three times as quickly over the last 30 years as we did over the last 100 years. So we're warming and we're warming faster now than we did over the last 100 years. These are the um, uh, term that I think we like to use, synergistic effects that happen that we're not sure exactly how they happen. We know, I think, that you had said something, again, on that previous interchange, which I'd recommend people listen to, um, that you can't always discern the problem in the, advi- in, in the atmosphere to say this is a, a carbon dioxide molecule and this is a, a sulfate of some kind and they get together and they, they get worse up there uh, in the sense that, that they synergistically become a worse problem than they were singly. Right. Um, this is, I think, a thing people understand uh, maybe if by drug use and or medic- medical use to say we can't have um, uh, certain drugs go together, they have negative interactions, but some drugs come together and they, they, they supersize their actions, they, they get worse. In a sense, climate change has to try to understand or figure out what those synergies are without really understanding what they might be. 
Right, yes. I mean, this is one of the things that, that we, we've seen very clearly is that we can document how much sea level is rising. It's rising faster than we anticipated, and it's because the Greenland ice sheet is melting faster than we anticipated. So you're right, we don't understand all of the feedbacks in the system. What we can say is that it appears those feedbacks are amplifying climate change even more than we, we anticipated. Yes, yeah, the speed that becomes the issue, I think, that, right. that we keep getting. And this is, again, why I push into the urgency aspect. Um, now, there was a movie that wasn't a good movie, and I'm sure it's not a good movie for climate scientists to talk about because it's probably wrong in many ways, but it's the, the, day, the, uh, the day after. I yes. think it was the name. Uh, so, so in the day after, what happens is pretty much the world freezes immediately. Like all of a sudden, <laughs> it's like it happens overnight. And so while that is uh, too extreme and laughable and unfortunately kind of gives us a, a bit of a pause and say, well, it's not going to be like that, um, there is a real urgency that I think we miss out on um, if we don't think of it more in terms like that than in terms like, you know, the you know, 12 million years it takes an ice age to happen or whatever. The, the, the idea that these synergistic elements can change in a way that we didn't understand and project or predict and perhaps speed up things even faster. It seems like the IPCC report tends to, to have to sort of say, well, we almost got that right, or we, it's actually 20% more than we thought it was going to be. Um, I think that we, I don't know if we mentioned it here, but uh, there, the, there's an updated methane report by, by someone who, who, I forget who, who wrote the paper, but the methane report says that we hadn't um, got those calculations right, and there's actually 75 to 85% more methane released over the time period than was calculated within the last IPCC or something like that. I mean, you can speak to that if I'm making stuff up, I'm sorry. No, it's, it's absolutely right. I mean, the, um, our ability to detect and attribute, so to, to measure a change and then say, and this is why it's happening, is improving all the time, but it's absolutely not perfect. I mean, for, for a long time, there were questions raised, is sea level rising as quickly as these measurements were, were suggesting? We're now absolutely sure that we are detecting correctly that change, and we are now coming to understand that it really is that the Greenland ice sheet is much less stable than we thought. What we also know from other research that's been conducted on Greenland is that the warming out of the last ice age actually occurred much faster than we thought. Hmm. So we have increasing evidence that actually the feedbacks in the climate system work faster and to amplify warming more than we thought in 2007 when the last IPCC report was written. Well, it seems like we can understand these things uh, and uh, you and I had talked earlier analogies can be dangerous because we tend to then only think in the analogy but I think computing power is a, is a decent one to think of in terms of how speed happens that way and it, it exponentially changes over 18 months or something like that. I forget the right. law that it's supposed to be. But if you think about it in those terms, that the, the climate has that, that sort of speed aspect to it where, where we, when we talk about uncertainty, we talk about the idea that we don't have a sense for exactly what will happen, but we know that these things are happening because of these particular elements. Now, there may be other elements we don't know about. Right. There may be other things happening that could make it worse. There are things that might slow it down. We don't know. But for the most part, it's moving in this direction fast. Right. And to me, that's a reason to say stop to everything. You know, that's the, that's the best reason for me to say stop to doing all the things we're doing now because I, I don't have any way to assess what other bad things are out there, you know, or how, how it's going to get faster. 
Right. I mean, I think that when coming back to the IPCC doesn't cover every possibility. Perhaps the biggest criticism from the science community is that the IPCC doesn't take those worst case scenarios where there's terrific amplification into account. And it, it is, um, to quote Donald Rumsfeld, that, that there are some known unknowns. Yeah. Uh, but I, I agree with you. I think that every molecule of carbon dioxide we do not emit today means we are saving ourselves problems in the future. And it's why I think it's very important that, that people do feel they can take ownership of the problem and they can think, every time I put on a sweater instead of turning, turning up the thermostat, I'm making a contribution. Now, whether, whether it's sufficient... Possibly not, but every moment we delay passing that two degrees centigrade warming threshold really is an opportunity to, to adapt. This is Interchange on WFHB. You're listening to our 2019 Fall Fund Drive special with a focus on climate change or climate disruption. This is a segment from the December 3rd, 2013 interview with Sarah Pryor, who was then Provost Professor of Atmospheric Science in the Department of Geological Sciences at Indiana University. Well, let's talk a little bit about that, uh, that aspect, uh, the way that we convey these particular requirements of, of, of trying to mitigate that, hitting those, those, those levels and going beyond them even. So we, we will have trouble adapting past that point. How do we get into the public space? This is a nice place to do it, community radio. We're having a conversation. People are listening. We'll share it later on the podcast. And um, our, you know, my hope anyway is that people then take this and have a conversation at work tomorrow, talk to your brother, talk to your sister, talk to your, your grandparents if you want to. That might be a difficult mm-hmm. conversation. But how is it that you, who, who write in, in chemistry frequently, are able to convey some of the, the issues that we need to deal with? Do people just listen to you and say, it's warming? They don't just listen to you frequently. Uh, yeah, last year it was pretty cold. Or uh, there was a great snowfall. What's a, it's not warming, there's snow. So how do we take the science um, that is clear, and as you say, unequivocal, across the board, unequivocal, that we're warming? How do we make it clear to, to the general public that those things need to be done, not just I should put on a sweater, but I have to do these things. Well, it, that raises some, some um, opportunities that we're trying to tap into with the National Climate Assessment. The first is the report is written to be accessible to, um, forgive the term, laypersons. So it's written in very uh, straightforward English. The second is for every chapter, so I'm the lead author on the Midwest chapter, we've written a two-page summary so that somebody can be given a leaflet and say, this is, this is the, if you like, if you like, the pricey of what we're saying. So those are, are real opportunities that we're trying to take to, to try and inform reasonable and, and sensible policy. The third thing we're doing is we're doing a lot of outreach. So... We are going out to to schools and, and giving public lectures because we want people to engage with 
both the process but also with thinking about they are determining our climate future. And I think if we can convey that sense of taking ownership, I'd like to think that it will become something like our, our space race, that we can, be, we can say it is a matter of national pride that we reduce our carbon dioxide emissions, mm. just as it was a matter of national pride that we went to the moon. Well, you mentioned the summary there of, of the, the assessment and having summaries for policymakers. Um, I noticed that, too, in the IPCC documents I looked at. There are those summaries that are for, again, policymakers, people who I assume don't have time or, uh, or per- perhaps the, the knowledge or skill set to understand those texts either. But they're uh, bolded in the text in, in orange in, in the document I looked at. It said, you know, this is the thing you need to pay attention to. Below it is the detail that will tell you why we put that statement out there. Um, I think for me, too, there's that, that disconnect in, in the sense of my, my having to think, are policymakers understanding this? You know, uh, are they understanding, one, the urgency, or two, the way that they really need to start mitigating their own, uh, for lack of a better term, interests or vested interests or political interests or corporate interests or or financial interests? You know, those are short-term interests. You know, those are my personal interests and, and perhaps my children's if I can make money for my children. But how are they reading those documents in a way that says... I really have to put aside what seems like good for the status quo moment. Are the documents written, as you say, they're policy neutral? Yes, neutral? Yes. This, I think, is troubling. So who, who picks up the document and says, this is not neutral? Or, you know, this needs to be something we take and move forward with. And because it's written in a neutral way, does it lose that urgency? Yes, maybe I should say the National Climate Assessment is a requirement of federal law. It is a requirement that we, do, we are not policy prescriptive, but we provide input to policy. Mm. Um, it hopefully will be adopted by the US government, and then I think the federal agencies will be required to make plans to address our to, to address policy. You know, I, I think in some ways there there are reasons, again, to be optimistic that the Department of Defence has been very engaged with the process and is already investing in building resilience of facilities to climate change. Mm. They've also um, made a decision to reduce carbon dioxide emissions from all military facilities. So, for example, the Crane Naval Warfare Centre here in Indiana is going to try and obtained 50% of its electricity from renewable sources within 20 years. So some of the federal, the large federal agencies are already engaging. I think you're right that there's still uh, mixed engagement with um, companies, but it's in some ways being part of that process has really been energizing because so many companies have come and said, okay, let's help us understand what we need to do to reduce our carbon footprint, but also to make ourselves resilient to the future that we now mm-hmm. foresee. No more politics, I know what's next. Call me hypocrite and burn down bridges. I got a river running through my neck. I got a river running through my heart. And all the blood spills runs to the ocean. While the oceans rise up and mingle with the air. Growing it's time for a break. This is Politics by Sean Hayes. 
This is Interchange on WFHB. You're listening to our 2019 Fall Fun Drive clip special with a focus on climate disruption. We've just heard from Sarah Pryor, a professor of atmospheric science, now at Cornell University. Dar Jamail, author of The End of Ice, is up next. Stay with us. All the rain that falls runs into the sea Growing crazy mixed up frogs that preach the coming of disaster Singing mercy me, oh God, of hell and ecstasy Eldorado blues, nowhere left to run Grandma got plutonium under the rug Fanatical bliss, fanatical fight Fanatics don't let their babies go dancing You repress the beat, you repress the wine Your mama mistook you for a lion She cut off your head, she don't know you're dead And all the streets you ruled run red mm, The grass grows green where the homeless man sleeps And the mystic sneezes rain showers I like your polka dotted panties And the heat grows desire As a white back arches Under a hot blue sky Sunday afternoon in the park Welcome back to our Fall Fun Drive special. In this segment, we'll hear an excerpt from our April 16 show with Dar Jamail, Don't Pull No Punches, in which Jamail asks us to confront the reality of the coming ecological devastation and possible species extinction. No more politics. I don't know what's next. You call me hypocrite. I'm on burning down No more politics I don't know what's next We're all hypocrites Come on, burn it down Go on, burn it down cancer and you've got a certain kind of cancer and we all know that if you have this kind of cancer statistically you'll be dead in three years now some people live five years longer some 10 some 20 etc but most people and by most i mean 85 90 percent live for about three years and if you have that conversation with someone their you know their their life drops away right their 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 ability to even think about life drops away for a long time how does how is this going to what does this mean? And this is part of the book that you say uh, that I think is important, finding meaning in this particular disruption. This is life disruption, just like being offered by your doctor a terminal illness. But it's not just your illness. It's everyone's illness, right? So this is the hardest part, for I think, for a lot of people. It's not. I'm 50, and I can say, oh, I've lived 50 years, and I've been one of these polluters and people who haven't paid attention to climate change, and I deserve any, you know, any, any negative thing a future that, if there is a future, could say about me. But I've lived enough life already in a lot of ways, but I have kids who are not even 20. And so you say that's the, that's the problem of a cancer diagnosis to your 20-year-old, your 9-year-old, your 3-year-old. 
right? These are part of the issues that I think are the hardest, hardest parts of this. I'm going to agree with everything you say here, Dar, right? I'm going to agree with, I'm going to say, of course, Amazon, the Amazon is now almost uh, emitting carbon, you know, as much as it's sequestering, right? The, uh, I'm going to, uh, the coral reef is dying. It's going to be dead. Uh, oceans have acidified. There's not life there. This is a, the vast uh, way in which the, the the world actually lives is under the ocean, you know, under the water, right? All that's going away. So this is a terminal illness, and we all have to face that. That's that's just that's just not something that, that you really can talk about with anybody. I mean, I, I just don't know what to do about it. Like I'm talking about it now, and it's going to be on the radio, and it's going to be talking about it, and hopefully people will say more about it. Instead of in this town, we talk about should we build another parking garage or not. Um, you know, this is a different conversation on a level that that's just almost impossible. And that's one of the most challenging parts of this time is that so many people won't have this conversation. I mean, I even in my world and I've been, you know, I've been writing about this for nearly 10 years and steeped in this kind of data for the book for over five. And it's it's stunning to me that I still only have a handful of people in my life that I can call and have genuine conversations with and know that they really get the magnitude of the crisis that this planet is in right now. And then have conversations on that very, very real level. It's really challenging to find people. And so I encourage people like, you know, once you find somebody that you can have this conversation with, stick with them and keep having it because I have to talk about this stuff and process it on a regular basis. I mean, I just can't keep taking this in and not do anything because I've gone through the gamut of struggling with depression and, you know, the trauma that comes with this kind of information, just like so many of the big climate scientists do, that this is really, really hard to bear. And the answer is, though, is is community, is we have to have other people around that we can do this with. And that's another thing that we can learn from indigenous cultures. I mean, corporate capitalist society fragments us. It atomizes us from one right. another. It is- it isolates us. And we need to be doing the opposite right now. We need to be having deep community. That's part of that resiliency that I mentioned of where are the people that we can get together and talk with about this. And then, and that for, if it's nothing else, it's just processing the news and, and the sharing our anger and our sadness and our grief around it. And then after that, okay, what, what can we as a small group do? You know, there are things like, you know, in my, <clears throat> in my community, and we were, we were just talking about it earlier, that some of our mutual friends who, who uh, have moved out here, you know, we have a small community garden together. And, and, and we do talk about what's going on and understand it. And, and we have this garden, and it's joyful to, to share that project together and then reap the benefits from it together. And and so it's it's like that. Well, that is a great uh, a great way to think of it because again, you will at least be living well while you are living uh, and living in proximity to people who you care about. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. This is our 2019 Fall Fun Drive special with a focus on climate change or climate disruption. My guest is award-winning journalist Darja Mail, author of The End of Ice: Bearing Witness and Finding Meaning in the Path of Climate Disruption. We focus throughout on confronting the certainty of the peril while adapting to the uncertainty of a way of living. This episode aired on April 16th this year. Keep it simple, man, you're gonna make it out. Keep it simple, man, you're gonna make it out. It's part of the dilemma that we face is our absolute 
inability to understand a world that is already racked by these problems. Like we can easily uh, just take a look at any part of the globe where the U.S. has invaded for, for one thing or an oil company has taken over the, the culture. Uh, go to any part of Africa where there's been drought after drought after drought after drought after drought or any part of Africa where there's been warfare encouraged by interventionism uh, and find people uh, living uh, subsistence at best, you know, dying in camps um, that are living this this sort of future dystopia already. We've already created these dystopias. The hard part for people who live in this beautiful, fancy place we live in where I'm talking to you and watching my audacity record you on my, my laptop by uh, the, the giant Apple company um, where we have to say, oh my God, that is my future. I think it's just almost impossible for people to see, to, to imagine. Well, it, it is until it really starts happening to you directly. And, and my experience in that has been the closest I've come to it up where I live in the Pacific Northwest is the intensity of the smoke from the wildfires up here the last several summers. Mm. And it's I've just accepted this is just how it's going to be now uh, along the West Coast, uh, just mm. indefinitely where it's, you know, because I have some respiratory issues and and it gets to a point where, you know, if it but I'm I'm so privileged in that when it's we've been in two weeks of wildfire smoke and I'm coughing and I'm really suffering, worst case scenario, I can drive out to the West Coast and get some fresh air mm. because the, of the of the short the, the breezes coming off of the Pacific. Well, most people don't can't do that. And so those of us living in these places where the the climate disruption impacts are forced upon us. That's when it gets really, really real for anyone that hasn't experienced that yet. Because my experience has been literally my fight or flight response kicks in. It's this deep animal urge of, okay, what do I need to do to take care of myself? And then you realize you can't leave. Hmm. Because if I if you expand out to the macro and look at what's happening to the entire planet, we're not going to be going to Mars and living happily ever after. There is nowhere we can go. This is it. Here we are. And then we're, it's forced upon us again. What are we going to do? But first we have to start with how are we going to be? And that's another line that that Stan Rushworth, who I mentioned earlier, shares. He says, look, it's about how are we going to comport ourselves during this time? Mm. That's that's the important thing is how are we going to behave? How much service can we carry out for people around us and people that we love and even people that we don't even know and for the planet itself? Because that that, I think, is the paramount M MO, I think, for all of us at this time. It would be nice if we were able to sort of push this point home. It's part of how I got started in, in radio in the first place was almost just a, as an anti-capitalist in a lot of ways because you see enough around you that you say these, are, these processes are the problem, right? This economic system, at least in this part of the world, has been a problem and this has, has shared its problems with the rest of the world by stealing resources and, and creating these issues across the globe, militarized this and that as well. Um, and so, you know, when you point out the rights versus obligations situation, this is to call forth a liberal ideology of individualism as opposed to uh, communalism, right, as opposed to a culture that understands a shared identity, a shared perspective, a shared prospective. Um, this is what we need to do, you know, and, but you have to kind of dis detach yourself from the economics of it. You know, it's hard to have a life at all absent economic capabilities. 
right? So t- turning into these community gardens is great if you have the wherewithal to do so. And even if you don't, you can go there. But a lot of people can't not have money right now, can't not pay their rent, can't, you know, all these things are like barriers to taking that step forward into not going to work but going to work on the garden, you know, not going to work, but going to uh, sit in the forest for a while to, to just say, I'm done with that. You know, I, I'm not going to pay that bill. I'm not, I'm not going to worry about these things. Emerson says somewhere, you know, uh, does a man have to put uh, his creditors first in, in the order of the things that are important to him? Mm-hmm. You know, no. <laughs> right? <clears throat> no. So we have to figure out a way to say no to that economic system as well. That's exactly right. And again, I think community is the answer. And and I know, I mean, I feel the overwhelm even just listening to some of what you just said of like, wow, look what has to change. I mean, the whole entire system has to go. There's no question about it. And so how do we get there? And again, it comes back to like, okay, is there one person I can find and work with and start making even the most rudimentary changes in my life? Of, da- of voluntary downsizing because it's all going to be forced upon us right. economically. Like we are going to have food shocks in this country mm. on the level that caused the Arab Spring. There is no no question about this. Like this is coming, and I think it's coming sooner than most people think. Look mm-hmm. at the floods that just hit the Midwest. Mm-hmm. Look at what's happening in Australia with the droughts and the heat and the fires. I mean, these food shocks are coming to the West immediately. I mean, literally within the next just handful of years at best. And so can we start voluntarily downsizing now, reducing our needs, finding ways to need less money? And I think no matter where we live, if we prioritize that, we can start heading in that direction right now, no matter what our circumstances, even if it seems like the most menial, small, inconsequential action. It's time for a break. This is 3 a.m. by Sean Hayes, off of Big Black Hole and the Little Baby Star. This is Interchange on WFHB. You're listening to our 2019 Fall Fun Drive special with a focus on climate disruption. Coming up next is David Wallace-Wells, author of The Uninhabitable Earth. Stay with us. In the morning, closing in, living in pain, living in sin. Keep it simple, man, you're gonna make it out. Keep it simple, man, you're gonna make it out. Burning 
Welcome back to Interchange. This is our Fall Fund Drive special focusing on climate disruption. In this segment, we confront the fact of global economics and politics and how in order to have a future human civilization, it will require immense structural change. I spoke with David Wallace-Wells, author of The Uninhabitable Earth, on June 4th of this year. It's all over, just like God. A fire comes and you can't strike back. It's all over, just like God. A fire comes and you can't strike back. It's all over, just like God. When the fire comes, you can't strike back. Now it's all over, just like God. A fire comes and you can't strike back. Desire. Now, you mentioned, David, in your book and everywhere you talk, though, the part of the issue here that we deal with is that when we talk about we, you and I, on this radio program or anywhere in this particular country, the we is pretty small uh, relatively, right? And part of the issues that we confront now is this is global climate change. These are global issues. These are industrialization issues. We have countries that are really just coming online in terms of industrialization and energy use, uh, fossil fuel use, etc. So that's, that's that's a bigger problem, isn't it, than even trying to understand what the U.S. politics is? Yeah, the geopolitical situation is really complicated, um, and it's the part of the story that I actually find uh, myself least hopeful about or most worried about. Um, you know, with the protest movements and the policy movement that we've seen over the last year or so, you know, I, I do see a lot of um, reason for optimism at the national level. But I don't yet see a system that can organize that energy and that momentum into um, a real cooperative framework that holds everyone to account. Now, we have a major conference coming up um, in September that was meant to be the sort of sequel to the Paris uh, conference in which nations of the world are theoretically going to be making bigger commitments to carbon reduction than they did the last time around. Of course, as I mentioned earlier, None of these nations have honored those commitments um, from the first round, so we'll see what happens. And it's also the case that, um, you know, an interesting dynamic is playing out whereby, um, you know, last week we had two elections that in a certain way hung on climate. There was the Australian um, election for prime minister in which the um, right-wing uh, standing prime minister was re-elected to much, of the, much to the surprise of the Australian press um, who thought that he was um, almost certain to lose. In it, after a campaign that was waged almost entirely on climate issues, this is a kind of a significant setback and makes us um, all of us worried about what is going to happen in our own countries when these um, when these issues really come front and center and you know in our voting. But at the same time, the um, the EU elections that were held across Europe um, scored a really significant victory for the Green Party. Um, actually, there's a way of reading those those results that show. The Green Party is sort of the biggest story coming out of that election and maybe the biggest winner of that um, of that election. And so there's this interesting dynamic um, playing out whereby we may be more comfortable um, with climate action at the interna- international scale than we are, say, in the context of the EU, than we are um, when it comes to domestic policies, say, in the, which is what um, Australia was really arguing over. And I think the, the, the larger... Um, cooperative network that we can stitch together um, in which to enact some of these climate policies such that we're not just talking about the EU, but we're really talking about the global network, probably the better off we'll be. Um, I think people will be more responsive to, um, to 
you know, pledges from individual nations more, uh, more open to that if they know that their neighbors are behaving in the same way. On the other hand, as I said earlier, you know, the Paris Accords don't give us much reason for hope. They are, I don't think you could say that they're a, a final failure yet, just three years in. But it's certainly the case that progress has been much slower than was hoped for um, with many nations of the world, in fact, all of the nations of the world, betraying those commitments. And, you know, short of instituting some kind of um, sanction punishment or even more intense um, nation-to-nation pressure to hold nations to account, I don't know how we're going to overcome some of those hurdles. Um, my hope is that you know, the sort of um, the self-interest of, of the species um, will bring us towards um, more humane, more engaged, um, and more productive action on climate. And yet, you know, as we've been talking about, the last 30 years have given us really very little reason for optimism on, on any of those fronts. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. This is our 2019 Fall Fun Drive special with a focus on climate change or climate disruption. This is a segment with David Wallace-Wells, deputy editor and climate columnist for New York Magazine and author of the book The Uninhabitable Earth, Life After Warming. I talked with Wallace-Wells on June 4th of this year. Keep it simple, man, you're gonna make it out. Keep it simple, man, you're gonna make it out. One of the issues that we confront is that as you talk, we're talking about nations that are often dedicated to profit, dedicated to resource extraction, dedicated to capital, dedicated to markets. One of the ideologies or biases that we are stuck with or that has kind of been a part of our life for so long is this idea that the market uh, balances things in the in, in the good way, right? The invisible hand will give us goodness even in our evil acts because because the market will figure it out. And this is has, has sort of taught us this passivity of consumerism. And so there's this sense that, you know, what what's going to happen um, isn't going to be what we do, but rather what happens to us. Now, that's a resignation, as I mentioned at the beginning, and I know that that's not where you want to be. I know it's not where you end your book, um, but multiple, you know, multiple books I read are basically, you know, these things are ending. There's no doubt the Great Barrier Reef will be will be entirely bleached uh, within a very short time. Uh, I don't, I, it's less than 10 years, I believe. So, um, you know, these things are massive and they're going to make massive changes happen more quickly than I think we're ready. Uh, not even close to ready, obviously, but more quickly than we're, I think, cognitively going to be able to handle it. Yeah, for me, um, the, it's a really important perspective to hold in mind that this is not a binary system, which is to say, you know, climate change is not a matter of whether it's here or not. It's not a matter of passing into some, beyond some threshold past which, you know, it's all over, civilization is lost, and, and nature is ruined. You know, we are inevitably going to be living in a warmer world that is almost certainly uglier, um, more competitive, um, more animated by resource scarcity, um, more denuded of natural bounty, um, and uh, full of more pollution that is damaging to us and, um, you know, impinging our ability to live um, happily, happily um, than we would like. But there is also an incredible spectrum of possibilities um, from, say, two degrees of warming, which, you know, the scientists of the world call catastrophic warming and 
two degrees now is best case scenario. I think it's basically our best case scenario, and 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 you know, it's it's a level of warming that scientists a generation ago would have thought was unconscionable, and now we're almost certainly, probably certainly, going to be getting at least that amount of warming. But we could also end up at three degrees, which would make things dramatically worse than that, and we could end up at four degrees, which would make things dramatically worse than that, and on and on and on. And no matter where we are on that spectrum, we will always bear the responsibility for. Um, determining the climate of the next, the planet's next decade, because at least for the very foreseeable future, the main driver of climate change is how much carbon we put into the air, which is to say that we have control over it. You know, when I talk about some of these ac- outcomes, when I talk about, you know, the, the global economic impacts, which are terrifying, or the effect on grain yields, which, you know, our, our grains could be half as bountiful as they are today, and we'd be using them to feed 50% more people, um, or the, the air pollution impacts, which just at two degrees would produce 153 million additional deaths um, just from air pollution. Um, these are, you know, these are these are incredibly terrifying, overwhelming um, data points, and yet they are also ultimately a reflection of our power over the climate. Because if we get to those levels of warming and produce those horrifying impacts, it will be because of what we do from here on out. We will be bringing those scenarios into being. And theoretically, at least, we could choose to not bring those scenarios into being by behaving differently. I think that there's a way of looking at all of this horrifying information, all of these terrifying projections, and feeling empowered by them. Um, Because really, they are just a reminder that we are in control of the system. And, you know, I hear sometimes from, you know, not not deniers exactly, but but climate skeptics who, who say, you know, okay, the planet's warming, I can see the figures, but it's not human-caused. This is just a natural um, fluctuation in the temperature of the planet. And, you know, I say to them a few different things. The first is, um, if you took the most rudimentary understanding of the greenhouse effect that was first um, articulated in the middle of the 19th century and input to that equation how much carbon we've added to the atmosphere, you would get a very precise prediction for the amount of temperature increase we've had. So I don't think we need to go around looking for alternative explanations for what, um, what's happening here. It's very, it, was, it was predicted, and the path of warming has matched that prediction precisely, which is exactly what you look for when you're trying to prove um, the scientific hypothesis. But secondarily, it is true that the planet has warmed and cooled in the past, um, but we are already entirely outside the window of temperatures that enclose all of human history, which means you and I are now walking on a planet that is already hotter than any planet ever walked on by any human before. It also means that everything that we know of as human history, which is to say not just what we know of as history history, but prehistory, human evolution, the development of agriculture, the rise of civilization of any kind, the rise of modern civilization, industrialization, globalization, everything that we know about the way that we relate to one another as social beings, as political beings, as cultural beings, all of those things arose under climate conditions which no longer prevail. It's as though we've landed on an entirely different planet with entirely different climate conditions, and those climate conditions are going to continue to change, maybe even at accelerating speeds. And we're trying to figure out how much of what we've brought with us, not just like the goods we've brought with us, but the culture that we've brought with us, the political organizations we've brought with us, the culture that we've brought with us, um, how much of that can survive these new, this new world. Um, and while it is the case that the planet has been warmer than this in the past, it is also the case that every time that there, there were these warming episodes like the ones that we're um, seeing now, it led to what are called mass extinctions, in which as, mu- as many as 95 or 97 percent of all life on Earth died. Days like today, giant plans, they go their own way.
Goes the Day. It's time for a break. This is Boom Boom Goes the Day by Sean Hayes, off of Big Black Hole and Little Baby Star. This is Interchange on WFHB. You're listening to our 2019 Fall Fun Drive special. We've just heard from David Wallace-Wells, author of The Uninhabitable Earth. Next up is Biodiversity and Species Extinction with Indiana University Professor of Anthropology, Eduardo Brondizio. Stay with us. drive show on climate disruption. In this final segment, Eduardo Brondizio talks to us about the ways humans have greatly altered both land and sea so much that we're facing mass species extinctions that could lead to human extinction as well. nightmares every night I don't know you do a lot of this research okay. you do a lot of research and you've got to, you got to deal with a lot of this information that's that's as we said it's is surely frightening on many levels you know species diversity is necessary the extinction of species causes the extinction of other species you know we've had what we call extinction events over you know in the in the in the time you know geological history or whatever right so we're in a sixth extinction event right? not yet no, yeah, but, okay, okay. Um, <laughs> that's so an interesting debate uh, but well, okay. Yeah, we can um, talk about it. So, so, uh, but the pro- projections are pretty dire in that space too. Like ninety six percent of you know, we we just sort of following in these places where I don't. Again, I I want to be able to say um, there are things to be done, but I'm struggling with it. Yeah. Right. I'm st- even even in this place where I might see some change because of certain community members and people gathering together and and people being able to elect other people who will make changes or people being on boards at the university who will make a change. You know, we always are waiting for that power to change right? because of the systems are so interrelated that I feel I feel powerless frequently. Mm-hmm. Even sitting here trying to talk to you, this has some power. 
Now, it's not a whole lot of power, yeah. but it has some power. Yeah. You know, I don't know what else to do. Yeah, I'm, you know, I, I tend to look at where we see some bright spots, where mm-hmm. people are reacting, you know, both at the individual level and all the way to the international level. I think there is a, is a momentum building mm-hmm. because it has become so obvious right. the, the consequence of the economic mm-hmm. growth model that we have used. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think we can separate environmental problems from social inequality anymore. Mm -hmm. So those things are coming together for people to realize that it's more than an environmental issue. Right. You know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a social issue. It's a development Mm -hmm. issue. Um, that has a lot of consequence for us if we don't deal with. Um, and so I see, I, I try to take a broader look that, okay, there's a rising, Mm -hmm. you know, consciousness and, and, and willing to act. Mm-hmm. You see the pressure mounting at the, the global level in right. general. So I tend to look at those bright spots in some ways to, you know, to, to be sure. encouraged, <laughs> uh, encouraged by it. Um, we have done a lot. I mean, when you look, when you, you know, we look at our review of um, policies and actions and you see examples at, in every sector you know, you, you see examples in agriculture, in fisheries, in forestry, in, you know, uh, industrial activities. You see good examples mm. developing. At the same time, you see a persisting, you know, idea of economic development that, you know, goes back to the mid-20th century, right? That idea that economic growth is an end in itself right. and that environmental degradation and social inequality are inevitable consequence of it. Mm-hmm. We tend to accept that idea still today. Right. You know, and, and that's the hardest change I think for us to right. to move from is you know to to economic growth is important but it's a means to it. So you, you know it, it, it's it's changing what we accept as a consequence of economic growth. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Our show is on the unequal suffering inflicted on humans and other species by the development ethic of capitalist economies. In other words, all the world's your garbage can. Our guest is distinguished professor of anthropology at Indiana University and expert on biodiversity, Eduardo Brandizio. Well, I've taken up a lot of your time. Well, well, it's a pleasure, it. well, yeah. I, I, and we haven't talked about species extinction. <laughs> let's do it real quick. Real quick, let's do it. Let's do it. We should. We should. Let's talk about it. Just uh, we, give me give me a summary of it. Uh, species extinction is one of the, again you you note in this particular report million a million species extinct, or yeah. you know, and this is obviously uh, something that's again hard to get your head around and yeah. and to to even know what it means. So that it was an interesting part of the report because as I've been, you know, uh, saying, it's a much broader report, right? right? It, has, it tells a, a much bigger story, but it does a very careful analysis of biodiversity, mm-hmm. right? In, in, in many aspects. And, uh, what we have been able to do from different lines of evidence is to look at, you know, how many species are threatened today, mm-hmm. uh, right? And what are, and when, and given the projections that we see now with climate change, you know, which is, you know, you're shifting habitats, shifting assemblages of species and, and environmental conditions. The projection of continuous drivers of land use, pollution, extraction, and invasive alien species. When you look at those things together, right, you see uh, f- from different lines of evidence, you see, uh, you know, over the next this century, uh, a significant number of species being threatened as, mm-hmm. as we calculated. You know, it varies from group to group, right? So you look at amphibians, for instance, they're the, 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 the groups with the highest, I think, levels over 40%. Mm. 
have some level of threat today or, you know, during, during the coming decades. Uh, you look at reefs, you know, a third of yeah. the global reefs. And, and that's a, a place where you see, you may see very quick tipping points, mm -hmm. you know, where degradation scales very fast. Uh, you look at major predators, for instance, you know, in both the Hester and marine environments, and you see significant numbers of those. Now, uh, yeah, so what we did was projecting those groups of species that are threatened today, mm -hmm. um, looking both at the, the monitoring that exists, for instance, IUCN, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, they have, uh, you know, very extensive monitoring of data that we are able to use to calculate of that globally. We look at the changing habitats. Uh, from satellite data and other kinds of data, what are current changes and what are projected changes and changes projected with land, with climate change, mm -hmm. right? So when you look at those together, what you see is a significant change in, in many cases, decrease on the available habitats mm -hmm. for a species. So you have a species that do not have enough habitats or enough viable populations, mm -hmm you know, to survive. Right. And when you add that to the pressures of extraction, uh, direct extraction or, or use, the, the situation that we're able to model is that, yeah, on 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 about 500,000 species across many groups are, you know, currently or entering into a, a situation of uh, risk of, you know, uh, over this century. Mm -hmm. And another half of it are insects. Yeah. Which we don't know very well, uh, but you know it's only a, a, and that's a tentative estimate. But from what you know, evidence available, it's about ten percent of of insects, you know, are in that situation of may not be able to hmm. to have enough habitats or viable populations. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. This is our 2019 Fall Fund Drive special with a focus on climate disruption. This segment is on the unequal suffering inflicted on humans and other species by the development ethic of capitalist economies with Eduardo Brondizio, Distinguished Professor of Anthropology at Indiana University. This interview aired on July 23rd this year. Do you feel this report you have is um, like many people feel about the IPCC, a conservative report? Um, it's conservative. So there I mean, are extremes that are far greater, yeah. like you, that are ju justifiable in statistical analyses to say these extremes are possible, very possible, plausible. You know, if other things fall into line, even. But so the the conservative report um, doesn't really scare us enough, perhaps even, even though these numbers are huge. These numbers are huge. They're actually hard for people to grasp, yeah, you know, the yeah. number of species. Uh, but we use it conservative estimates, yeah. you know, both uh, in relation to the total number of species um, and in relation to, to the, the, you know, the, the change in habitats. We try to be conservative. Mm -hmm. But even though when you project available data and, you know, plausible changes in habitats, extents, mm -hmm. and so forth. That's what we get from mm -hmm. the model. Why be conservative? Do you have to in terms of the... the well, because there are many areas of knowledge that we're still, you know, mm -hmm. developing. You know, so we, we don't know a lot of those species, yeah. right? Right. Uh, we know that they, the, you know, we know that they exist. Right. We know where they are, sure. right? We, right? We we know, in many cases, the distribution mm -hmm. of habitats for many family groups and so forth. But there's a lot of knowledge that needs to be right. developed. And, well, even if you uh, if you accept as as I think is now the floor of our best case scenario with climate 
with warming as two degrees Celsius, mm-hmm. which is now the best case scenario. Um, if you yeah. have the sense that it, climate's going to move to your number one spot on how it affects species extinction and biodiversity, then it's probably yeah. necessary, maybe in your next report, uh, to be more extreme or mm-hmm. move uh, move away from some of the conservative well, I numbers. I mean, we did in our you know our scenarios about. Uh, even if we, if we, you know, if the warming is held at 1.5 to 2.5, the majority of the history species ranges are projected to shrink mm-hmm. significantly, sure. even holding at that. Right, and and most people level. now are not expecting that even. So yeah, so it's yeah. not a rosy picture. No, it's not. And yeah. I mean, to end, actually, one aspect that is very important in this report, and I think is the one that deserves a lot of attention, and, and it, it's, it hasn't received as much as needed. When you look at the sustainable development goals, mm-hmm. right, the 17 goals for 2030, right, that includes a, a number of social goals for poverty, for hunger, for health, for equality, for resilient urban areas, for sustainable energy, and, and so forth. We did an analysis of each one of those goals and the indicators and targets. We've seen them. And what we show is that if we do not reach the environmental goals, I mean, improving uh, environmental conditions in land and water and so forth, we have compromised already 80% of the sustainable development goals. And that's for the next decade. So in a very short term, you know, right. the, the, if we don't address yeah. key environmental issues that we know how to address today, we're compromising right. significant number of social issues. Right. You know, yeah. so, and, and I think that is the important right. news here that just in the next 10 years, right. you know, we have a chance to bring together and to address environmental problems and social problems in a more synergistic way. Mm-hmm. Or the opposite, you know, relegate many of our social goals and environmental goals to uh, a situation that will be more unequal than. All things are spinning, pushing and pulling. All things are spinning, pushing and pulling. All things are spinning, pushing and pulling. All things are spinning, pushing and pulling, moving. That's our show. We'll close with All Things, another from Sean Hayes off of Big Black Hole and the Little Baby Star. I hope tonight's selection of previous interviews on an immeasurably important topic makes clear the value of this program, Interchange, and your community radio station, WFHB, that makes it possible. This is your program on your station. Become a contributing member of this community right now by calling 812-323-1200 or going online to donate securely at wfhb.org. Next week, I'll try to keep my promise by speaking with Joel Wainwright, author of Climate Leviathan, which argues that rapid climate change will transform the world's political economy and the fundamental political arrangements resulting in the terrifying eventuality of a capitalist planetary sovereignty. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Jar Turner is executive producer. Look for more programs online at wfhb.org news slash interchange. Thanks for listening. You see, I want you move me. Springtime comes, you move me.